Hello and welcome to another episode of the DD Geopolitics podcast. My name is Lydia and I am joined by the one and only Jam. And today we will be doing part two of our wonderful series, Russia in the 90s, aka my childhood trauma. And we're very excited. This episode is going to be for those of you who love more deep dive episodes, who love history, who love learning the historical context of all the events that are happening right now, because we know that nothing exists in a vacuum and all things are connected. Yes, indeed. When we last left off in this series, we left with Faces in the Snow where President Boris Yeltsin was, in part at the urging of an oligarch, Boris Berezovsky, who had bribed him by publishing and buying his memoirs, and in part through his daughter, Tatyana Dyachenko, they had both used the Presidential Security Service, or SBP, to attack and intimidate the employees and security detail of an oligarch, Mikhail Gusinsky. And you might be thinking, after the economic dislocations, hunger, desperate expedience, shelling parliament, and general horror, that things would at least begin to bottom out, to which we can definitely say, no. This is Russia in the 1990s, and we are far from the bottom. We are about to talk about the First Chechen War. Indeed, and that is actually a very important and a very traumatic event for Russians. And I feel like we, when you look at Chechnya, what it is right now, for a lot of people, especially if they're not very familiar with the Russia, you know, with Russia, how it was in the 90s, uh, it seems very strange that we even ended up in a situation like this, because obviously, a lot of people know about Chechnya and the Chechens just from following the a uh, special military operation in Ukraine, and they're some of our most brave and loyal warriors, and we're very proud of them. And so to some, it might seem like a very difficult thing to comprehend that there was a point when we were actually not friends, we were not fighting together, we were fighting against each other. Yes, quite so. So, we are going to try and improve a bit of how we do things here. We are going to try and present some things, if we can get it to work. We'll see. We're quite like Anatoly Trubase, who we'll be talking about again. And we haven't made a plan. We're just kind of hoping that it's all going to work out okay. Kind of like President Yeltsin when he was doing whatever it was that he was thinking that he was doing when he started the war in <laughs> Chechnya. So, uh, we shall see. We shall see. Yes, and if and if we struggle a bit, we're doing this without our wonderful producer today. So, if some things don't go exactly as planned and seem a little bit dysfunctional, just just know that we're trying to give you the full 90s experience and trying to you know, make things a little bit dysfunctional on purpose. So you have this immersive experience of a podcast. So what we're going to do now, uh, we're going to set, well, JM, because he is 
perfect for this kind of a thing. We're going to set a little bit of a stage for how the conflict in Chechnya actually started. Oh, yes, indeed. And for that, we first need to talk about Chechnya itself. So, che what is Chechnya? It is a mountainous region of Russia, home largely to the ethnic group known as the Chechens. For much of their history, the Chechens subsisted on subsistence farming, I know, tripe, but that's what they did. And among this included, for example, sheep, goat, and cattle herding, but also raiding their neighboring ethnic groups. And they have long resisted any state power, any state power. So not just Russian czars, but periodically attempts by the Ottomans to get them to swear fealty to the sublime port, and also, of course, the Shah of Iran. They are known to be extremely clannish and have bloody enduring feuds between clans for past and present wrongs, but to come together and unite against an outside threat. The Chechens had resisted and thwarted advancing Russian imperial power in the 18th and 19th centuries. Subduing Chechnya was a constant in Nicholas I's reign. Things were, to oversimplify, more or less quiet until the Great Patriotic War. Some Chechens, however, collaborated with the Germans against the Soviet government, but many more saw the Germans as an invading, hostile, utterly alien force and fought with the Soviet government. Stalin, as was his wont, vastly overreacted to the fact that some Chechens had been treacherous and some had dragged their feet and not shown sufficient loyalty. So, on 23 February 1944, he had the entire ethnic group deported to Kazakhstan. This event was utterly traumatizing as the Chechens were rooted up out of their homeland and thrown into an area where no provision or preparation had been made for them. Many died. Recognizing this as a great crime, Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev permitted the Chechens to return in 1956. Most did so, but some do still remain in Kazakhstan. What follows next makes them less sympathetic. To regain Chechnya, the Chechens decided, as a conspiracy among their clans, that to ensure that they had many, uh, they needed to have many more children than the ethnic Russians, to stick together no matter what, and to bully local Russians, and so swamp the Russians in numbers and drive them out of Chechnya. Essentially, even while the USSR still existed, the Chechens were passive-aggressively, and in some cases not so passively, ethnically cleansing the Russians from Chechnya. When Yeltsin said in 1991, grab as much sovereignty as you can swallow, this was before the Soviet Union broke up, the Chechens eagerly took this up, and they appointed Major General Jokar Dudayev to be their new president. And I'm going to be trying here to actually um, uh, now uh, present some things. Hopefully we can see them. Yes, there's Dudayev. Um, so you can get a good uh, look at him. Dudayev has gone down as a crazy man because of who he aligned with, his various statements and his habits. For example, much of his time as president, he actually spent practicing judo. Perhaps he was a crazy man. But it is equally possible that he realized once he got to Chechnya that he was trapped. Chechnya was highly clannish, 
no one would listen to him. And as a man married to an ethnic Russian woman with half-Russian children and who had spent much of his life in Estonia and Leningrad, he may have been the highest-ranking Chechen general in the Soviet armed forces, but he was also an outsider. So his craziness was perhaps his way of trying to control a situation that if he tried to leave, he knew he would be killed, whether most probably by other Chechens or by whoever in the rest of Russia. Chechnya, however, in this time from 1992 to 1994, still received subsidies from Moscow, while the Chechens stole oil from pipelines raided nearby settlements in Ingushetia, which incidentally helped bring an end to separatism there as the Ingush sought protection from the Chechens, and as Chechen criminal gangs fought with Slavic gangs over prized territory in Moscow for different pieces of turf. And of course, it became a center of mass wire fraud. In 1992, the Chechen State Bank defrauded the Bank of Russia of $700 million, not rubles worth $700 million, just $700 million. This was not money the central bank could afford to lose. Dudayev kept pushing more and more for outright independence, which Yeltsin would never accept. The situation spiraled downward, and there appeared to be no bottom. It was definitely a very scary situation because obviously I was a child back then. And when uh, the the conflict broke out, I remember on my part and with my limited understanding back then, uh, what I felt and I feel like even what some adults felt, there was a lot of confusion because by that time, I feel like uh, most Russians kind of uh, came to terms with the idea that the Soviet Union was no longer and that the countries, the republics that we used to think about as ours, they were separate countries, independent. And so uh, for me, it was, a, I guess, the confusion part where, where that came in is why, for example, were some places places allowed independence by why did we have to go to war and so I tried to make sense of things like that and also I remember that generally even the adults some people felt that we should have just let go of that situation uh, because let's keep something in mind if you especially if you listen to the first part of our series then you know that people were under immense pressure. People were in a bad situation, bad situation all around every day. And so the last thing that they actually wanted was a war. <laughs> and not to mention that I feel like that that is generally not the type of a thing people want. However, there was also another part, and especially where I live in Siberia, where people actually strongly felt that uh, the Chechens needed to be, quote-unquote, taught a lesson, that it was our job to, to bring order there, and that we absolutely needed to get involved. Whether we were in a good position to get involved is a completely different issue that we're going to discuss right now. Oh, yes, indeed, because uh, while I uh, struggle and uh, in my various machinations to try and make this look good, 
even though it's not really working. Sorry about that, everybody. Uh, we need to talk about something else that did not look good, and that is about the Russian army in the 1990s. Now, the gentleman that you can actually see there on the screen has nothing to do with the Russian army in the 1990s. I just wanted to introduce someone who will you'll need to bear in mind for this episode and for the next few episodes, because he'll be reappearing. It was the commander of Chechen forces, such as it was, or rather Dudayev, I suppose you could call him military chief of staff, Colonel Aslan Maskhadov, who was a veteran of the Afghanistan war and a former Soviet officer who was working to set up military structures in an independent Chechnya. We'll see how far he succeeded. But let's not talk about Maskhadov. Let's not talk about Dudayev. Let's instead talk about the Russian army in the 1990s. Now, that's the wrong picture. That's actually General Rev Lev Rochlin. We'll be getting back to him in a bit. We'll also not be talking about him. We'll get getting back to a bit. That's then General Anatoly Kvashnin. That's General Edvard Vorobyov. Yes, let's settle on this picture because it actually, despite the appearances, despite the sickle and hammer cap, badges, despite the Soviet uniforms, this is not a unit of the Soviet army you're looking at. It was taken in 1992. This is a picture of the Tamanskaya Guards Division of the Russian Armed Forces. As you can see, they look exactly like the Soviet army with Soviet uniforms. So it's perhaps a good place uh, there when they're right at that transition point, when you get to look at that uh, picture, to capture kind of what it looked like, and also perhaps to illustrate what I'm about to talk about next. So let's go back to 1987. The Soviet armed forces in that year were comprised of 5.3 million men under arms and received one-sixth of the share of the national economy. To reiterate, the Soviet defense budget was one-sixth of GDP. This had not increased due to Reagan's military buildup, as some American conservatives posit. It had pretty much been like that since 1950, albeit it had been lighter under Khrushchev, but not that much lighter. The point being that Gorbachev and others thought that in the context of a slower-growing Soviet economy, it was simply outrageous and unaffordable to keep up this military establishment that comprised almost 2% of the population and swallowed one-sixth of the national economy. Even today, with the SMO, the Russian defense budget is about 7% of GDP to give you an idea of how enormous this military commitment by the Soviet Union was. So, not unreasonably, Gorbachev and others wanted to slim down the force. But then we have to consider some things about the Soviet military. The first is that the Soviet armed forces were largely a conscript force. The Soviet officer corps was approximately 1 million in strength. There was a small corps of professional NCOs, and the rest were conscripts. Formally, there were sergeants, but in practice, they rarely had seniority due to how conscription was structured. Conscripts served for two years. Sergeants were conscripts selected for their leadership aptitude, given a year of intensive preparatory training, and then expected to formally run the unit in the second year. But usually, they did not. That instead went to conscripts in their second year who had more experience than the new intake and, one might add, the sergeants. These were called grandfathers, or djedje in Russian. When it worked functionally, a new recruit, sometimes called a ghost or spirit, or duch, would be paired with an older conscript. The younger recruit 
would do most or all of the bad work, cleaning latrines, doing extra cleaning of boots, sweeping the barracks, and so on. And in return, the older recruit would teach him how to do other tasks set down in the military and how to avoid mistakes so the officers and warrant officers would not punish the unit and they could all have as much free time with the least amount of stress and effort possible. That is when this system, called Yedovshina, or the rule of the granddads, worked. Often it did not. Older conscripts would often take parcels of food or letters from home from the conscripts, beat them if they did something wrong or made a mistake, and as a punishment, and for their own amusement at night, they would make younger conscripts go through ritual physical hazing such as athletics, where the older conscripts would make the younger ones do athletic exercises and beat up the first one who fell. Dozens of young men died from hazing in the Soviet army each year. It was known about, but not talked about. Officers often did not care, or thought it was the only way to control a unit, even if some of them would actually discipline Djedi who went too far. And we have only scratched the surface. Obviously, because I am a woman, I can't talk about any personal experience, but I can talk about some things that I know about the regular military service from my dad and also from my cousin. And they obviously served in, in the military at different time periods, but both of them served during the, the Soviet Union. My dad's service was in early 60s, and then my cousin's was in the sometime in the 80s. I don't remember which years exactly and so just to kind of make this this dark picture that we just painted a little bit less depressing i can say that actually both my my dad and my cousin uh didn't have much negative to say about their their military service even though they have both stated that the things that you've just described jm they, they were true to a different extent and also from from my understanding largely dependent on you know on the circumstances and the location where you served in the troops and there are many variable variables there but my dad actually always spoke pretty fondly of his time in the military even though he was very much a civilian in mind and never had any, uh, I guess, any desire for real military service. But he always said that it taught him real life skills like cooking, like cleaning, like some other stuff. And he said that he he did experience maybe some pressure uh, from the other soldiers who were senior, but never anything, any violence, let's put it this way. Just, he said that enough to make you tough. <laughs> and that's also kind of similar to how my cousin described his experience. He also said that obviously it was something, Didavshina was something that he went through like everyone else. But again, there was no real violence and nor did he witness any real violence. And so I feel like that also speaks kind of, even though they both didn't have a bad experience, but that just also also says a lot that that was very much a normal thing, that when you went into military service, you expected things like that to happen to a certain degree. And I guess you just hope that they wouldn't get super bad and they, that it would be just enough to make, so to speak, a man out of you and not to, you know, to injure you or ruin your life completely. Oh, yes. Please let me make this clear. What I'm describing, uh, Djedovshina, I described when it worked, 
And so Lydia's given us some good real life examples of that. But I'm describing when it didn't work. And also, let's make clear the Soviet army was a force of 5.3 million men and about 1.8 million conscripts were passing through each year. So several dozen dying from Dyadovshina is several dozen too many. But in the context of what is basically a megacity as an institution by itself in terms of the number of people in it, several dozen a year really actually... It's bad, but it's not terrible. It's like it can be kept hidden and not talked about too much, particularly because back then the Soviet military, having one sixth of the national economy at its command, training was a lot more intensive for combat operations. And there was a sense that war with the West or sometimes with China could break out at any moment. And so that helped restrain Dyadovshina because you didn't want anybody who was in your unit and who you'd abused if you were an older conscript or even an officer to suddenly think, hmm, no one's really going to question if this guy gets a bullet in the back of the head and I'm going to get even. So that was a part of it. It also, of course, depended on the people back then because one of the advantages of conscription is that you're drawing in more people from the wider society, and therefore you get a more a greater diversity of people in the military, most of whom are just there and ordinary people. And being ordinary people, they don't really want to do harm, and they're there together, and it's about getting through this together. And again, just not getting shouted at by the officers of, why hasn't this been done? Why isn't this been done you're now all uh, we're now all going for a five kilometer run so you know spare us all the effort i'll show you how to do this properly and the mistakes i made so you don't make them and also from this you'll be a better soldier it just would have been better if they'd had a professional nco corps um however let's make this very clear Dyadovshina in the soviet military was bearable it was pretty. It was it was pretty bearable. Um, this started to change when everything began to fall apart, and that's why I started out in 1987 because that's when everything began to fall apart because of Glasnost. And in the spirit of openness, Dyadovshina was talked about. So this kind of made it seem because it was constantly being talked about in the press, and people would focus on the horror stories because the stories Lydia told are a lot more typical. But they're not very interesting stories. It was, oh yeah, I went into my military service. There were some tough experiences, but um, overall, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that life is a book and those two years were two two pages ripped out. Definitely two uh, pages uh, full of some stories, some tough memories, but also some good good ones. Not a very interesting story. Uh, talking about how brutally you were hazed and how the officers were complicit or did nothing. Great story. So that's the one that's going to make it into the press. But the perhaps crucially, the military, which was very secretive, the Soviet military, that is, was not used to hearing or having to deal with such loud and persistent public criticism. The generals and admirals either responded badly or essentially froze, not quite knowing how to respond or what to do. Gorbachev provided them with fewer and fewer resources, and as more horror stories came to light, resistance to the draft increased, so more and more socially unsuitable men were drafted into the military, worsening the problem. By socially unsuitable, I mean people like criminals. Gorbachev also demanded the military step in to restore order in Tbilisi in April 1989, in Baku in January 1990, and Lithuania in January 1991. 
and each time when dealing with a violent separatist mob, the army used force, and each time Gorbachev washed his hands of the result and blamed the army rather than the mob or accept responsibility. In late 1991, Yeltsin stepped in and assured the armed forces that he understood them and valued them, that he would look after them, that he would give them what they needed, that Gorbachev had been unfair to them. In the August 1991 coup attempt, one of the generals Yeltsin had been so cultivating, Pavel Grachov, impetuously told Yeltsin he would help him when Yeltsin called him. And Grachov's machinations to save himself was part of the reason why the attempt by the GKCP to save the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, it should perhaps be telling that the attempt by the GKCP, I'm now trying to find the picture of Grachov and Yeltsin, yep, there they are, uh, collapsed because the GKCP, full of so-called Stalinists and hardliners, it's more complicated than that, was unwilling to use force, but Yeltsin two years later did not hesitate. But the end of the Soviet Union is a tale for another time. Now let's focus on Yeltsin and Grachov here. When the Soviet Union broke up, Russia inherited the largest part of the Soviet armed forces. Many of those troops were suddenly in what were now foreign countries, including the Baltics, Belarus, and Central Asia, and even some troops in Germany and Poland. The economy was collapsing, and technically, Moscow started with 2.8 million troops under its excuse me, command. In practice, though, much closer to 2 million, simply because um, a lot of people who would have been drafted simply weren't. There weren't the resources to look after them, so they weren't drafted. And on top of all of this, with much of Soviet military assets that Russia technically inherited, it deployed in what were now foreign countries, all of that and all of those men, all of that mountain of material equipment and ammunition that the Soviet Union had carefully husbanded and prepared to fight a war to ensure that the USSR would not be a victim again as it had been in 1941, that had to be brought home. And the men needed homes, some place for them to be based and to live. To say that this was difficult, even had circumstances been more ideal, is an understatement. It's especially difficult when the economy is collapsing and the budget is constantly being cut. To Grachov's credit, he largely got this task done. But, as we said, the economy was collapsing and Yeltsin was, well, Yeltsin. So all that budget cutting and not even paying out what was promised in the budget that we described was the neoliberal economic policy set out by Yeltsin and his team, so Gaidar, Chubais, um, Chernomirdin, that applied to the military too. No money for salaries, for food, for training, for new weapons, for weapons weapons maintenance. Horror stories abound from this time in the Russian military, but we'll try to give a few examples. And now go back through pictures of the Russian military in the 1990s. Uh, we don't have some of the more miserable ones. So by 1999, a junior lieutenant's salary was one-tenth of the official poverty level wage. A lieutenant colonel's was barely above it. Even by 1993, 92% of junior officers, that is to say officers below the rank of lieutenant colonel, said they had no faith in tomorrow. Almost as soon as they were commissioned, most officers wanted to leave the army. Naturally, like most other government employees, they were paid irregularly, often not in full, and never paid on time. 
With service conditions declining and pay not being dispersed or even troops being fed, Dziedovshina and crime got much worse. So, in the Soviet military, dozens of conscripts died from Dziedovshina a year. The much smaller Russian military, hundreds of conscripts died from Dziedovshina in a year. In 1994, the Russian Academy of Sciences in a sociological survey noted, for any man entering the army, there was an 80% probability of his being beaten up, 30% in a particularly savage or humiliating form, and a 5% chance of being raped. Command negligence was epidemic. Because he provided them with no budget, Yeltsin let the high command use official armed forces property resources as their own private property. Certain illegal weapon sales were overlooked. Soldiers were used as labor to build private dachas for generals and admirals. In 1994, some sailors of the Pacific Fleet were abandoned and starved to death because the high command forgot they were even there, and no one bothered to resupply or relieve them. To simply survive, units which usually, usually were not training, for which there was no money in any case, but hiring themselves out as labor for construction work, as farmhands, or even as beggars, and sometimes as the muscle for various criminal gangs or businessmen. In some units, the officers would pocket any money received, and the enlisted men would receive nothing at all. Speaking of training, the training time for pilots fell from 150 flight hours a year to 30 in 1994. By 1998, flight training hours were down to 10 hours a year. Vehicle maintenance declined by 70% between 1989 and 1995. In 1994, 120,000 officers, officers were homeless. I said again, 120,000 officers were homeless. To the extent any housing was provided for them, some were put in tents with their families in the dead of winter. You know, as as we were getting ready for this podcast, and as I was reading this information about the sad state of uh, things in the Russian military in the 90s, it actually made me think about something interesting, because you know that I am, <laughs> I love propaganda and I love analyzing propaganda, better way to put it. And so, as we know, a lot of the people who deal with the propaganda about Russia in the West. I mean, the ones who used to live in Russia, they actually left Russia in the 90s. And I feel like our listeners will agree that a lot of the things that you just listed, a lot of the problems that the Russian military experienced back then, uh, they sound very similar to what the West is saying the problems in the current (laughs) Russian military are. Uh, for example, what do we hear? What are the main propaganda points uh, about the Russian military these days? They say that the Russian military is under-equipped, that is poorly trained, that is very extremely unmotivated, that the soldiers lack even the most basic of things. They have no more warm clothing, they have no food, they have nothing. And so, but these days we actually, because we have the internet and because we have enough uh, sources, we can very easily disprove these claims. But 
back then, unfortunately, these things were true because the, it was the state of things. And I know this, and now we're going to be approaching kind of a very delicate topic for my family because I actually uh, have someone in my family who ended up in the first uh, Chechnya war. And he was actually a conscript. That's my uh, my cousin's husband. And why the reason why I'm saying this is a delicate topic is because um, that's not something that he actually liked talking about for very apparent reasons. So whatever information I was able to gather is largely just, you know, bits and pieces here and there and from talking to uh, my cousin back then when I was growing up and from uh, just having some experiences with him and his friends who also were conscripts who were uh, in Chechnya back then and so they one of the things and that's sort of our you know every family has some stories that they they like to to uh, tell and something that was uh a thing about him is that because the when he was stationed there, well, we can use the word stationed, it seems like a very fancy word for what it was. Uh, they didn't get enough food and obviously their diet was very poor, so it was largely things like barley and just very, very basic, not very nutritional things. And so for many, many years after he was home, he couldn't eat eat it because it gave him just very strong associations with that time and because he said that he they would eat so much of it that was pretty much all they ate and also he remembered just how cold they were because they uh, these days they claim that the Russian soldiers don't have winter uniforms but back then they would get stuff either late and so a lot of the soldiers would be cold, they would get all kinds of infections, a lot of the people would get um, kidney problems because they would have to sleep on the cold ground and they, they wouldn't have enough clothing or blankets or anything to keep them warm. Uh, then eventually, when they would get uh, winter clothing, it would be ripped and old, and it was all kind of old remnants of the Soviet glory. So whatever they could find in storage and no matter what state those things they were in, they would try to send it, send it to them, but it wasn't enough. And so the when they say that the morale in the Russian troops right now is very low, that's not even true, but back then it was very true because even the professional part of the military back then you could say wasn't exactly excited about the war, but the conscript part was even less excited. Oh yeah, definitely, most definitely. And now I am going to try and fumble through this and now I finally have the right sequence. Sorry, everyone. So we met him before when I was first fumbling around, this is General Edvard Vorobyov, the deputy commander of the ground forces. And he is relevant here because the generals, even though a lot of them were corrupt, still knew the state of their forces and knew that they simply were not ready for combat. So when Yeltsin decided that Dudayev was asking for too much, it had gone too far and it was time to make an example of him, 
and also to protect the certain business interests of certain oligarchs who were being inconvenienced by Chechen criminal gangs, Chechen smuggling, Chechen wire fraud, uh, that the army simply wasn't capable of doing any combat missions. There weren't any resources. The men were barely looked after. They weren't paid. They were barely fed, as Lydia very graphically said. So, not surprisingly, many senior officers almost mutinied when they were told to go prepare a force to attack Chechnya. This gentleman, General Vorobyov, who was tasked with leading the invasion force, refused to lead men in these conditions into battle when they were not ready, not paid, not looked after, and against a motivated enemy. In his mind, it could only be a slaughter of his soldiers, and he refused. Yeltsin angrily fired him, and Russian liberals made snarling utterances about uppity generals not obeying civilian authority. The commander of the VDV, albeit internally, General Yevgeny Podkolzin, angrily protested to Grachov. Grachov was also a paratrooper. Grachov ensured that Podkolzin was cut out of any input into the operation in Chechnya. General Boris Gromov, the last Soviet commander in Afghanistan, also protested and was removed as deputy defense minister. Even two of the generals assigned to the expedition, General Babachev and General Rochlin, that's General Rochlin, who was also a veteran of the Afghanistan war, they did obey their orders, but they publicly protested what they were being asked to do. It is therefore doubly ironic that Russian liberals soon insisted that the people who had convinced Yeltsin to start the First Chechen War were a conspiracy of old communist hardliners who were pushing for war in Chechnya, when the most pro-Soviet generals and the intelligence chief, Yevgeny Primakov, who we'll meet next week, uh, him, and Primakov to note was ex-KGB and also a Soviet loyalist, they were actually against starting uh, the war. This was less from a principled opposition to war, but from a firm belief that making a war in this way, given the state of the armed forces, was utterly immoral. So, uh, I'm Lydia, can you please end uh, the screen sharing, please, so that I can transition to the other folder? We haven't planned this out very well, everyone. We're we're trying to cobble together an expeditionary force like in Chechnya, you know, just from bits and pieces here and there. Okay. I think this worked. Yeah, that worked. Uh, so one of the men that you briefly saw there, just to note, was General, the uh, best-looking one, was General Anatoly Kvashnin. Uh, he was actually designated as the expedition commander. He was a very ambitious officer, and he has a bad reputation, but we're going to do what we can in this program to try and rehabilitate him somewhat, simply because uh, I think at least that how he has been characterized um, is simply not fair. Just very, it's very simply, it's it's not fair. Um, so, the force that moved into Chechnya in mid-December 1994 had barely a month to prepare, and worse was a motley collection of cadres from various units, because almost no units were up to strength of any kind. And at only 23,700 men in strength, it was utterly insufficient even to secure Grozny, which was and is a city of about half a million people. Many men and officers were working together for the first time, 
And because of the problems we described, they were often barely trained and with rock-bottom morale. There was no time or thought given to giving the men some crash training or ensuring they were looked after. It took two weeks for this force, once it set out, even to reach Grozny without even encountering much resistance. Uh, they did have some people shooting at them and some ambushes, but mostly they were being blocked by Chechen civilians who were begging them, much like we saw in the opening of the Donbass Wars, plea to with people in eastern Ukraine to the Ukrainian military, please guys don't do this. Um, and they eventually forced their way through, but while using a lot less force than the Ukrainians did. Um, so they only got into position outside of Grozny on 31 December 1994. Uh, and now we're going to try and uh, present our uh, picture, uh, our um, uh, little video, our little collage there of um, uh, the Battle of Grozny, because this thing kind of needs to be, it kind of needs to be visualized. I mean, there is no other way that you can do it. So that's a Chechen fighter in front of the presidential palace after it had been ruined. This is taken from January 1994, just to give you of a bit of an idea of what we're looking at here. We're first going to look a bit at what the Chechens look like. Um, Dudayev and Maschadov you've seen in military uniform, but the Chechens didn't really have a set military uniform. Uh, there were technically a few units, but um, they mostly dissolved into independent warlord groups. And in terms of who could be an insurgent, they it being an insurgency, people wouldn't necessarily wear uniforms or identifying markers, and some Chechens would just grab guns and go fight the Russians sometimes because they thought, uh, oh, this will be fun, and I want to shoot at some Russians. But we won't be calling the government forces the Russians, because not everybody in government forces were ethnic Russians. Some, of course, were Tatars, Buryats, or whatever. And also, some Chechens, even in the first Chechen war, fought on the side of the government. So we'll be calling them the federal forces and not the Russians, because they were all Russians in a national sense, but given that there are those two meanings in English, it can confuse the question. So again, just to give a sense of what the sort of look that Chechen fighters had. Um, whoops, we're getting ahead, but you can already see that things are not going to have a happy ending, because of course they're not. This is the Battle of Grozny. This is the Battle of Grozny. There is no happy ending here, so um, all of you who had any hope, despair, you can see the cost of, of what this, the toll this battle took on men and also on the city. Quite a contrast to today. So, the Chechens had set up Grozny as a giant, giant death trap. The Chechens knew the city well, whereas federal forces had to sometimes use maps from the 1960s and 1970s. You might have heard this story, too, from the start of the SMO, where Russian soldiers and units were ostensibly using maps of Ukraine from the 1960s and 1970s. That's where that trope comes from. The Chechens also knew federal tactics. Many had served in the Soviet army, like Dudayev, like Maschadov. The Chechens split into small squads of fighters rather than concentrating their forces in one area. They might be in basements or sewers, 
on the roofs of buildings, behind barricades, or beside the road. Ambushes and snipers were everywhere. They would fire and then move quickly to another location. That's a quote, by the way, from Professor Mark Galliotti's book about the Chechen Wars, so therefore you can't sue me for copyright. I am giving full attribution. What we're going to focus on as being emblematic of the Battle of Grozny and the assault that started on 31 December 1994 is the destruction of the 131st Motor Rifle Brigade, also known as the Mykop Brigade. They were allowed by the Chechens to advance and assemble in the square around Grozny Sent Railway Station. Though they did not know it, they were cut off from all help. Then a Chechen rebel broadcast on Claire over the radio this message to the federal forces. Welcome to hell. Fire erupted around the soldiers as RPGs and prepared explosives detonated. The fire was coming from so many directions the federal troops did not know where to fire back, and many were cut down or burned alive in their vehicles within minutes. Many abandoned their vehicles and shot shelter in the train station itself or nearby apartment buildings where Chechen rebels were lying in ambush and killed many of them. Some soldiers broke into groups and tried to flee as best they could. Some even threw down their weapons and raised white flags and tried to walk out or beg the Chechens to spare them. It made no difference. Some were chased down and literally hacked to pieces while begging for their lives. The brigade commander, Colonel Savin, tried to get the few vehicles that were left working to evacuate the wounded under a white flag. These vehicles were all targeted and destroyed by the Chechens, with the wounded burning to death. Colonel Savin died with his men. Only General Rochland's column managed to get a foothold into the city and make any progress. For achieving his objectives, fighting competently, and largely keeping the men under his command alive through his deliberate approach, in addition to his service in Afghanistan, General Rochland became a hero. We should also note that some Chechen police actually joined federal forces in the fighting when they entered the city. And again, this is worth bearing in mind. Whatever historic enmities between many, che che many Chechens felt towards the Russian state and ethnic Russians, they utterly despise the anarchy of Dudayev's Chechnya, and I think that should tell you how much Chechnya sucked, which is that this was Yeltsin's Russia, and even then quite a few Chechens were like, I really wish that we could improve our situation to that of Yeltsin's Russia. Oh, one little note. Some of the people who were there massacring Russian soldiers who were wounded or unarmed, some of them were Ukrainians. Yes, really, about 200 Ukrainian nationalists fought in the Battle of Grozny. Um, now, that there is a picture from the Battle of Grozny, albeit of a happier one, where the soldiers actually are fed and uh, joking with each other. But, as you can see from the previous pictures, it mostly wasn't like that. It was a lot more like a nightmare. One of the worst nightmares, uh, more than I hope you can imagine. But we're trying to give you a sense of what it was like. So, having described this horror, perhaps it's not a surprise that in reaction to this, the expeditionary commander, Lieutenant General Anatoly Kvashnin, who had confidently accepted the command when General Vorobyov resigned, came up with what in retrospect was an utterly reckless attack plan, but was shaken enough by the results to order a withdrawal of most federal forces, aside from General Rochland's column, from the city, 
and he incited to instead demolish it with airstrikes and artillery bombardment. However, the massacre in Grozny and a lack of new support or fixing of basic problems meant federal soldiers remained unmotivated and unprepared. Counter-battery fire to Chechen mortars was inept, meaning almost no Chechen mortars were knocked out or destroyed. Pilots were undertrained and often missed their targets. Most of the civilians killed in the city were ethnic Russians, and often elderly. Still, as we have discussed, Yeltsin didn't like any threats to his power, and he didn't like being shown up. So, he threw 30,000 more men into Chechnya to try and rescue the situation. So, by the end of January, Grozny, or rather its ruins, were secured by the Russian army. Over the next five months, government troops slowly advanced, taking regional centers in Chechnya, such as Argun and Gudermesh. One might assume that, given victory, that would raise morale a bit among the soldiers, but it did not. The military budget fell by 18% in real terms in 1995, a brutal cut to the budget, even while the military was being asked to undertake a major war in Chechnya. Even as they advanced, morale among uh, Russian troops did not improve. Looting and brutalizing local civilians who federal troops viewed as all likely to be insurgents was epidemic. One might also add, with all the criminality in Russian society, and at the very top of the Russian government, many thought, as British journalist Anatole Levin covered, that the idea of anyone telling them that to steal, to abuse, to take what you could and looking after yourself was wrong, morally wrong, when people like Yeltsin, Chernomyrdin, Chubais, Grachov, and Soskovets, and others were running the government, was worse than a bad joke. An indicative example of morale given by Levin was of an MVD, so Interior Ministry, of Nutrenivoysk, so Interior Ministry Armed Troops, the predecessor of the Roskvardia, who was with two of his men finishing looting a Chechen house, and they were drinking vodka that they had looted from the house. Suddenly, the major grabbed his two conscript soldiers and... Uh, by the shoulders and brought them up and said to Levin, will you look at these kids? I mean, just look at these kids. What are they doing here? You know what they are paid? $5 a month. Would you risk your life for $5 a month? Would you do anything for $5 a month? Indeed, federal troops would accept bribes from Chechen rebels, allowing the rebels to pass through their checkpoints or not be fired upon, even if they knew that the same... Chechen rebels were going to attack other federal units, if for no other reason they needed to accept these bribes because they needed to get money to buy something to eat. And now, seeing this picture of horror, uh, we're going to pause for a bit while we change galleries to come to the great atrocity of the Chechen war, but not one committed by government forces. It was the so-called Siege of Budyanovsk. But also, oh, while we do that, I might actually use this time while you're you're doing the the technical part to to kind of reflect on what you described. Because let's keep in mind, our dear listeners, that I'm sure that you that you felt some very 
strong feelings while you were looking at those pictures and the same feelings were were felt in the russian society when i was preparing for the this podcast i actually w- went through the news archives and uh, i looked at some of the reporting from the front and there was one that actually stuck with me a lot because there the reporter from one of our channels went and spoke to the conscripts and she showed a lot of the, she talked to a lot of our boys and she asked this very hard question she talked to them about the conditions that they were living in uh, she talked to them about you know the the morale and the difficulties that they were facing and she asked this question why are these conscripts why are these boys that are not properly trained are being forced to fight there and that's that's something that that weighed very heavily on the hearts of the people in Russia, because obviously uh, these were not just regular military. These were literally boys from all over the country. And to, and like we said, and I talked about this in the first part of our podcast, but if, if I were to describe the, the general mood of the Russian society in the 90s uh, towards the government, I would say the best word to to describe it would be abandonment, because people felt genuinely abandoned by their government. And that was just another proof that the government had no concern for the life of the citizens, for the future of the country, and the people couldn't do anything. And so we will, I guess, that just keep that in mind when we talk about Yeltsin in the future and why he was even less popular uh, after this war than he was before. Yep, now we're going to uh, fumble our way here uh, in a lot more fumbling than should be done through the siege of Budyanovsk. And uh, it's really not funny because um, we'll, <coughs> we'll talk in the le- last episode of this series about Beslan, just because um, I'm a sadist and I like you all to experience the trauma I felt when I learned about these events and what, what Lydia felt when she had to live them. So who are we looking at here in the center? the man with the gun. We're looking at Shamil Basayev. He was one of the Chechen rebel commanders, and he'd fought pretty viciously in the Battle of Grozny. On 13 June 1995, he decided that, well, obviously he decided a few weeks before, but it looked as though the Chechen rebels were losing because federal forces had taken and secured, after a fashion, two-thirds of Chechnya. So he decided that he needed to do something to change that dynamic. So on 13 June 1995, he gathered 200 of his men, put them on buses and trucks, and they took rifles, ammunition, explosives with them, and some money. The plan was to get to the city of Stavropol and take a lot of hostages. However, they ran out of bribe money before Stavropol, so Basayev and his group drove into the small town of Budyanovsk, They intended to bluff their way through the town, but incredibly, they ran into police officers who would not be bought and were suspicious. The Chechens then gunned these police officers down and assaulted the police station. 
Officers tried to defend themselves with their service pistols, but it, it was to little avail. Many were killed. Panic ensued in the town as nobody knew what was happening. Basayev's men rushed the local hospital, shot several of the staff, and took 1,800 people hostage. Not just doctors, nurses, and patients, but visiting family and anybody they could grab from the streets and drag into the hospital. Local MVD and army units that you can see some of what this looked like there. Local MVD and army units then showed up. The Chechens forced people into rooms and hid behind them. Several attempts were made by MVD and army Spetsnaz to storm the hospital, but each ended in utter failure with casualties among the would-be rescuers and the hostages, but none among the terrorists. On 19 June, Prime Minister Viktor Chernomyrdin himself arrived to negotiate. As Pavel Hlednikov wrote, Russian TV watchers were saw a videotape of their Prime Minister Viktor Chernomyrdin talking humbly with uh, uh, Basayev. Chernomyrdin agreed to let Basayev go. He was provided with buses and fuel to facilitate his return to Chechnya. He was also allowed to take several dozen hostages with him back to Chechnya as a kind of security guarantee to ensure that the federal Spetsnaz from the MVD and the army would not attempt to try and kill him and his men for what they had done. And uh, there's a good uh, kind of picture to conclude on just what it was that they had done. And now while this was going on, one of the great steals of the century was going on. In Russia, perhaps the most infamous steal of the century, loans for shares. So, we'll be getting into that. In 1995, Yeltsin was already looking to get financing for his re-election as Russian president. Chubais, as Russia's privatization chief, cut a deal with the seven most powerful and well-connected financial industrial groups to divide up the remaining state enterprises between them in return for them and their media empires supporting Yeltsin. Something to for listeners to learn if they already don't know about this. But usually when we talk about Russia in the 90s and all the terrible things that happened, everyone hates on Yeltsin. And I'm not saying that they're not correct to do that. He's definitely one of the most hated figures in Russia up until this day. But if there is someone who is actually somewhat up there with Yeltsin, it's Chubais. And hang on while is... I get his uh, smug picture onto yes, the um, uh, so that we can hate on him. There we go. Yes, and he is actually something to keep in mind that this man who is who was in charge of one of the greatest frauds you can say in Russia's history was also in the picture for quite a long time and he left Russia last year kind of right as the special military operation started he went to uh, to Israel and everyone was actually happy about this believe it or not because the whole country was like finally finally we got rid of him uh, because 
he is, even though, obviously, and we will get into this in great detail, he was not the only one responsible for that whole disaster, but he was definitely one of the key people, and that's why up until this day, a lot of Russians associate his face with the misery that they have experienced in in their personal life and also in our life as a country and as a society. So remember this man, everyone hates him. Yeah, absolutely. So what was going on here? Chubais and several liberal ideologues were anxious to hand over Russia's few remaining state-owned enterprises, many of them still profitable or export earners, to private hands. Now, why is it relevant about export earners? Well, uh, Russia was getting loans from the IMF and was being crushed under all of the foreign debt of the Soviet Union, which it had assumed from all the other republics that it was paying off on its lonesome. And to service those loans, it needed dollars. And specifically, the Russian government needed to be able to lay its hands directly on dollars. So these enterprises were often very corrupt, let's be honest, and run for the benefit of entirely their directors and board of directors, and not for the benefit of the Russian taxpayer or even the Russian state. Back then, the best example of this was Gazprom, which was actually created by Chernomyrdin, and it was formally owned, as it still is, by the government. But in practice, it was basically run for the benefit of Chernomyrdin and his family, and Gazprom paid the government almost nothing. But even so, in an emergency, uh, Gazprom could be tapped to give something to ensure that there was no default. Um, but there were other similar enterprises like uh, this that the Russian government had barely any kind of control over and was kind of happy with this, because after all, the point of privatization and ending communism is to ensure that everybody is happy and content. I'm, I'm kidding, of course. It's to make sure that very well-connected and unscrupulous members of the former party state elite get to be filthy rich and kicked down even more viciously. And Chubais and the several liberal ideologues wanted to ensure that free market capitalism, i.e. that process of people like them getting to sit at the top and kick down even more viciously, would uh, certainly be legalized in some kind of way but not to any former stinking so-called red directors or members of the party state elite that they didn't like, but to make sure to give it to their friends, a proper privatization of sorts. So why did the oligarchs want to do this? Like, What is the motive here besides a simple money grab? Because you can say greed, but that's a bit too simplistic. Klebnikov, I think, correctly described the motivation of the oligarchs. This there is Boris Berezovsky and uh, Roman Abramovich, who were some of the beneficiaries. That's uh, Vladimir Potanin and also Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Um, that's Mikhail Friedman. But let's focus here on Khodorkovsky. Uh, pictured here, I actually think, by Hlebnikov himself in his office in Menetep Bank. Doesn't he look respectable, Lydia? He, I didn't even recognize him at first because I'm just these days he has a completely different image. I'm sure that some of uh, you know what he looks like these days and this is wild. But this, this type of a look is actually very, I would say it's very symbolic of the 90s because a lot of the 
very rich. They enjoyed being very openly rich, and this is exactly what we can see. Well, also tastelessly rich because that uh, tiger skin carpet is probably from a Siberian tiger, which is uh, endangered. Um, and uh, it's not even very well done. Uh, he's wearing kind of uh, nasty clothes, uh, but they're probably all very expensive, as is the marble there, which is almost certainly Italian, but very expensive, but not very tasteful. And he looks a lot more like a gangster, which, let's be clear, he. this is kind of why I think when uh, Russians say on business mien, it doesn't sound like, oh, he's a businessman. It sounds more like, hmm, there's something uh, shady and very probably criminal. Yes, you, can, you, got, you got that right. You can kind of see why. So the banks, uh, having made a fortune handling the accounts of Russia's major exporters, so basically part of the scheme was, sure, these companies uh, export materials, but then their export revenues are handled by these oligarch banks who are doing nothing but using the money, the hard currency from these exporters to basically play the market and engage in speculation and make easy profits on the basis of arbitrage and any other schemes we can't get into here. We'd be here all day. We'd be here all week describing all the various schemes and the details around them in the 1990s and the way the Russian government was stolen from, allowed itself to be stolen from, encouraged itself to be stolen from, how it was done, what the West knew about it, how much they encouraged it, how much they were alarmed by it, how much they weren't alarmed by it, how many excuses they made for it, the harm it did. We would be here all week. We don't have the time. So... Um, the banks wanted to use the money earned from handling the accounts of the major exporters to buy the exporters' equities. So in other words, to just take them over and secure the cash stream. But Russia's new banking titans could not afford to pay very much for their stakes. They had made billions of dollars in just a few years, but a lot of that money had been frittered away on marble lobbies, check the picture, fleets of Mercedes, mansions in Moscow, and villas abroad. In effect, to secure the rather unsecure banks, which Mikhail Khodorkovsky smugly admitted, probably in this interview, by the way, where he's having his picture taken, that the banks basically held controlling shares in bankrupt enterprises. They needed to have lucrative ones with easy revenue streams backstopping their uh, financial industrial groups so they didn't all fail. Never mind that these enterprises and their revenue were undergirding what was left of the Russian state. In brief, loans for shares was the idea that shares in these remaining Russian state enterprises could be used as collateral for loans to the Russian government. So lucrative were these enterprises, in fact, that the Russian government could run an auction as to how much money the government would be lent in order to obtain the shares as collateral. As the loans were never intended to be repaid, the idea was the banks would then get the shares and get constructed controlling stakes, or even complete stakes in the enterprises. To be clear, this was not an open process. Not an open process. In practice, the Yeltsin government, with Chubais taking the lead for that, and a cabal of seven heads of financial industrial groups, the so-called Semibankirshina, decided who would get what amount of shares in which enterprises and at what prices. This was not to be clear again, handing off lucrative assets to all of Russia's oligarchs, 
and much less to foreigners. Some oligarchs and some foreign companies tried to get in on the auctions by offering substantially more money than the opening bid levels, but were kept out, even though it would have been a much better deal for the Russian taxpayer. Perhaps the most infamous victor of loans for shares was the oligarch Mikhail Khodorkovsky. They're pictured here in part in a nicer-looking haircut with a nicer-looking suit. As described by Klebnikov, uh, Yukos, the oil company that uh, Khodorkovsky was after and for which he became famous, a re recently formed holding company that was Russia's second largest oil company, was uh, his target. Among Yukos's holdings was the producer Samaraniftgaz, whose exports were being handled by Berezovsky, and the Samara refinery, which had been rocked by a series of assassinations two years before. As one of the best endowed oil companies in the world, Yukos was the single largest prize in the loans for shares auction. A 45% stake was being auctioned. In early November 1995, Menatep brazenly warned outside bidders to stay away. There should be no two opinions about this, Konstantin Kagolovsky, first deputy chairman of Menatep, told the press. We will get Yukos. In the end, Khodorkovsky paid just $9 million over the starting bid of $150 million to obtain Yukos. That was not the end of what Khodorkovsky was up to either. The enterprise directors in Yukos, though formerly working for the state, had effectively run the business for their own private profit and had not been happy with the auction that disturbed their arrangement. That did not stop Khodorkovsky and the others who profited from loans for shares from beating, intimidating, or even murdering recalcitrant enterprise directors. Oh, and the economy shrank by 4.1% in 1995 and a further 3.8% in 1996. For perspective, the British economy shrank by 4.2% in 2009 and the American economy by 2.9%. And we remember the trouble that that caused. So... How the hell was Yeltsin re-elected? That is actually a great question. And to kind of sum up uh, for our listeners, obviously we could spend quite a long time just talking about all the things that Yeltsin has done wrong. But I guess to set the stage uh, for why it was so difficult for him to win the hearts of the Russians, we could maybe even focus on just the three things. One, the economy, because by now we're in the middle of the 90s. So if it, during the first couple of years you you still could claim that, yeah, maybe, you know, the USSR economy wasn't that great and then we were transitioning. But then, you know, sufficient time has passed where people already had enough. That's one. The second one, obviously, the the Chechen war and the suffering of the Russian men that the whole country was witnessing. Obviously, that war was extremely unpopular, regardless of uh, how you view it and whether it was justified or not. And then the third reason is because people just, uh, in by that time, Yeltsin actually wasn't 
you could say, in the public eye that much, because something to keep in mind about Russians, Russians respect a strong leader. And what I mean by that uh, is that Russians actually need someone who, who looks like he cares about them, who looks like he's present, who looks like he's there to lead, to give them hope, to encourage them. But he was none of those things, and people couldn't act like he was. Which is why you can see the challenges that he and his team were facing right in the beginning of his campaign. And I can tell you this, that again, when I was preparing for this podcast, I was actually thinking, and what's funny enough is that if you ask me, what is the first and maybe even the only political campaign that I remember really well, that is extremely memorable, I would say that one. Because whether you love or, or hate the man, whether you think he was done well or it was tasteless, and we will get into details about this, it was definitely creative. And it was definitely even, I will go as far as to say it was masterful in some ways. So this time Lydia is going to be presenting and hopefully our competence will improve, but that's because I need to also try and uh, present a few things. So uh, Lydia, could you please uh, get up the picture of uh, Gennady Zyuganov? This is not going to be quick. <laughs> I feel like you're going to be better at this. <laughs> um, yes, but I'm also not a very good juggler. Oh, let me see. We'll we'll cut this part out. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, we will. Um. Well. Uh. While you're fumbling with, damn it. Uh. Okay. This, this... What what am I even supposed to push? I've never tried this. <laughs> That's all right. We'll definitely be cutting this out, uh, especially that bit with the ad because I'm trying to get the uh, picture of uh, Yeltsin dancing. <laughs> oh my god. Um. <laughs> The um, famous one. It, yes, uh, and I've got a prepared joke for that, but we'll get to that. So um, uh, you will need to go to present, share screen, and then you'll want to have like one of the pictures open. Um, okay, I open it on my computer. We're doing. Let me. Okay, let me find it first. Let's let's take this step by step. Let me find this. It uh -huh. will be in the election. Election 1996, and yeah. we have Zuganov, and we have him with, you want just him. Okay, I found the yeah. picture, and then what do I want from it? <laughs> do we, where is area when we need him? Okay, how do we even open the screen? Okay, shift. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you'll want to again. So click share screen. Um, you'll you'll want to have the um uh, picture share open. Screen. <laughs> okay. I'm I'm just openly coughing because I know we'll cut this out, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, just relax a bit. Okay, share screen. Uh, okay, I'm officially retarded. Okay, did this work? Um, yeah, and now um, 
go to um, like full view because we want to see him there in Davos and all his glory. Um, okay, like no, this. That is, yeah, because that. Okay, so now that we have Zuganov up on uh, screen, we can say the short answer to how Yeltsin won is this: He didn't. He cheated, and actually, he was not elected. Zuganov and the communists were. Medvedev told Zyuganov this in 2012. Another picture here, but we're not going to overstrain Lydia by uh, cutting to that immediately. And Medvedev apologized to Zyuganov and told him, you should have been the president. The story which you are here to listen to, though, is longer and more interesting than just, they cheated. In early 1996, given everything we described, it is no surprise Yeltsin's approval rating was in the single digits. Zyuganov was actually a guest, and that's the picture at the World Economic Forum in Davos, and many lined up to meet the man they thought would be the next president of Russia. There was no bottoming out of the economic depression or victory in the war in Chechnya that Yeltsin could point to to explain his recovery in the polls. Indeed, at this time, Yeltsin and his inner circle were divided. The, the SBP, so, secure, so Presidential Security Service Chief General Korzhakov, Alyeg Soskivets, um, we have a picture of Soskivets with Chubais, so could you please cut to that? I will try. Is it in the same folder? Yes. No. It's the one with uh, that unbearably smug uh, blonde guy, i.e. Chubais. Okay. Yeah, That's there it fair. is. Yeah, so there's Chubais in the center with Soskivets on the right. Um so keep this in mind because uh, these two men are about to be divided. To be divided. Oleg Soskovets and others wanted to simply cancel the elections outright and declare martial law. Interior Minister Kulikov and Defense Minister Grachov both told Yeltsin point blank they did not know if their men would obey any orders to impose martial law, or even we could probably argue if they had the resources to carry out such orders. Given everything we have covered about the armed forces, which extended to the dire state of the VV, so again, Vnutreni Voisk. This should be no surprise. There was a second group who thought that Yeltsin, though, had brought democracy to Russia, that he could convince people that things were about to get better, that it was time to stand on Prince... I'm just kidding. Chubais and this clique thought that they could use the media empires of the oligarchs to hoodwink everybody into voting for Yeltsin, and where that did not work, they would simply steal the election. This would be difficult. Yeltsin had had a heart attack at the beginning of 1996 and was in rapidly failing health. But one thing that Yeltsin was very good at was rising to the challenge to smash any sort of challenge to his power. Could you please show them, Lydia, the uh, picture of him getting fit by practicing tennis? Yeltsin. Okay. Practicing te uh, tennis. It's the uh, next one. Yep, there we go. See, that's Yeltsin getting fighting fit. The man, the legend. Yes, uh, with his uh, tennis coach, Shamil Tarpashev, who ran the National Sports Fund, which was also beset by corruption scandals and, smug and was used to smuggle things. That's a whole other story that we simply don't have time for. So, as you can see, he actually did try to get fit. He ate a little less, he drank a lot less, but where his energy failed, drugs kept him afloat. This was he, in other words, showed remarkable 
uh, self-discipline for a man with notoriously poor impulse control. In terms of organizing the oligarchs to help Yeltsin, that was a role played by both Anatoly Chubais and the oligarch Boris Berezovsky, who we showed a picture of earlier. Berezovsky gathered 13 of the most powerful oligarchs to his mansion in Moscow on 27 April 1996, and together they issued a communique that said, Russia was being divided into, quote, us and them, reds and whites, and that if it continued, there could be a civil war in Russia, and Russia would disintegrate. They called on all people to unite and find compromise, by which they meant ensuring their fortunes were protected, and no one changed anything, and this was apparent from the concluding sentences of their press release. Russian businessmen possess the necessary resources and will to influence both those politicians who are too unprincipled and those who are too uncompromising. Uh, Zyuganov tried to counter this statement, which had effectively called for suspending the Constitution and for, for the communists to agree not to run for election by asking for a televised debate with Yeltsin, and Yeltsin refused. Control of the media and how the media was used was the key to what, ha to what happened here. So uh, could you please cut to the picture of Zyuganov uh, campaigning with Gorbachev? Yeah, there we go. He's looking a bit uneasy. Uh, that yes, but also shows that uh, despite everything, Gorbachev didn't forget the party, and the party didn't forget him. It didn't forgive him, but I think it's a case of Luji mm, Kakluji, and they both yeah. hated Yeltsin. Well, pretty much, I feel like everyone hated Yeltsin at this point. And something to say, I would like to say a couple of things about his campaign, which, you know, we'll get into a little bit more. But Yeltsin whole, Yeltsin's whole campaign was actually based, you could say, on the anti-communist sentiment. Because he knew, obviously, he was aware and his whole team was very much aware of how the people felt. And it was actually reported that in the first months of his campaign, he would, when he started going around the country, visiting different cities. I, I don't remember exactly which city it was, but there was one when he he had a low approval rating there before he went there. And then once he went there, it got even lower. So that is the mood, our dear listeners. That's how it was. And so the only sentiment, because he couldn't actually show any real improvement in the country. Uh, so the only thing that he could literally count on was the anti-communist sentiment. What do I mean by this? Is actually playing on the fears of the people. Like, he, the campaign videos that were used, uh, they would show, they would paint those scary communist uh, entities and they, they would say, do you want closed borders again? Do you want uh, no food in the stores again? Which we can say some of those things, they were, <laughs> they were definitely an issue in the Soviet Union, but they were largely amplified by the, that campaign. And because some people by then, obviously, regardless of all the various struggles, there were also good things to, to the fall of the Soviet Union. So people got used to having certain things, and so they didn't necessarily want to lose them. And so I guess it played to a part of the 
Russian audience, especially the younger one. And you can actually see, and you will see it, that there was a part of the Russian population that they were targeting heavily in their campaign. Uh, we're going to fumble here for a bit, though, to show uh, some of this stuff, because it's worth bearing in mind that what Lydia presented was a stereotype of the uh, Russian Communist Party's campaign platform, which was a lot less back to the planned economy and a lot more actually, let's continue with uh, economic reform, but not be a bunch of corrupt, sadistic assholes. Yes, that that would have been nice, but unfortunately didn't work out that way. Um, yes, because not being corrupt, sadistic assholes would have meant threatening the fortunes of the oligarchs. So, Lydia, if you could stop presenting so that I can present and show this very charming ha-ha-ha-ha-ha clip. And uh, now we are going to fumble here for a bit, dear listeners. Yeah, here we go. I mean, yes. what, what would you want in a president, realistically? Traumatizing. Every Just think about this. Every uh, time he uh, moves and shakes his arms, 10,000 Russians are dying. Yes. And, and then if you get this perspective, then it stops being funny. Because um, on a more serious note, you're very right. Because it was actually a lot of Russians thought it was in very extremely bad taste. And because he already had his reputation of someone who was uncaring, someone who had troubles with alcohol. And I guess the whole idea, just to give our listeners a little bit of a context, uh, the man who was on stage with him was a very, very popular singer back then, Yevgeny Orson, who was very popular among the young people. And of course, as you could see, the crowd there, there were largely young people, which kind of confirms what I said before, that his whole campaign was targeting the anti-communist sentiment. And so I guess the whole idea was to show that he was full of energy and hip and not communist. And, yeah, whereas uh, I might be uh, young, but actually I've always been an old man. So I'm like, I want a gray opera chick. <laughs> well, I can tell you this, even though back then I was very young, I I was not impressed because genuinely everyone that i know was extremely puzzled by this campaign 
And even though I remember that we as kids were singing some of the songs that were used in those campaigns because they were very catchy. I feel like that's that's why I said in the beginning that I find that campaign masterful in a way uh, because it was very pop culturally, culturally and very creative from a marketing point of view. But then if you come to the substance of it, it was very tasteless, just considering what the country was going through at the time. Oh, yes, definitely. So now let's uh, describe the campaign. Uh, we've given up uh, some of the photos and we're not going to uh, try and uh, press our luck. We're going to be a lot more like Zuganov and just hope that an uninspiring uh, message of uh, general competency and knowledge will get us through because, you know, that's uh, nice and lefty. Of course we're winning. The facts are on our side and I got all my facts right. I therefore must win. <laughs> uh, nope. Yeltsin's campaign, by the way, was limited to spending $3 million, but they got around this in several ways. Yeltsin's campaign spent $3 million directly, that's true, but contributions to his victory in advertising for him came from other sources. So, for example, the pro-Kremlin party, Our Home is Russia, Nashdom Rossiya, also spent $3 million. Yeltsin was not a member of the party, and therefore it was technically legal for them to just have a bunch of adverts, spend all their money on focusing on Yeltsin and not the party. Other various minor parties were given money to support the president, usually $3 million, and many local governments also threw the administrative resources of their regions behind ensuring that Yeltsin got votes, looked good, and made life as difficult as possible for the communists. Furthermore, the media empires of the oligarchs made and produced documentaries on the horrors of Stalinism, caricatured or outright lied about Zyuganov and the communists and lionized Yeltsin. I joked once, by the way, at university that what they did to Zyuganov was they made this actually uh, quiet, soft-spoken, gray operatic who was, uh, if anything, a little bit feminist into Stalin in terms of how they portrayed his... Um, campaign. And why do I say feminist? Because he actually, with Professor Stephen F. Cohen, had this uh, very uh, touching interview when he was interviewing all the major candidates for president, including Yeltsin, and he also interviewed Liebed. Uh He asked Yuganov, well, what do you think about the role of uh, women in Russian society? And he said, well, one thing that you need to understand about me is that I was essentially uh, raised by women. Now, my father was one of the lucky ones to come home from the Great Patriotic War, but he had lost his arm and he couldn't do as much as he uh, wanted to do. And uh, he was lucky. Many others simply did not come back. So I grew up with women as farm directors, as teachers, as, a docker, as doctors. So I've always thought that uh, women often hold this country together. I feel like that's a very popular Russian sentiment in general. And I would like to kind of uh, add to your point, because obviously, and to, how do I put it? I guess to to some people who look at Russia from the outside, Zuganov might seem like just this very stereotypical communist. But I have to say that back during his campaign in even now, some communists in Russia actually consider him not communist enough, meaning that he's not hardcore enough. And I have to agree, he's definitely not a Stalin. He's very 
well, I don't know if moderate is the right word, but he is very measured in his approach he's to a, a lot of, of things. He's a child of the Khrushchev and Brezhnev eras, eras I would say, that kind of... Yes, yes. So def definitely not the the hardcore Bolshevik image that people often imagine. Exactly. So again, it's this kind of uh, stereotype, and we can... It's a whole different subject for another time that I'm sure we'll eventually get to about um, what I would call the Soviet Golden Age, because that would just be a nice feel-good set, set of episodes, but we'll do that another time. Let's talk about misery and death. Um, it's worth again quoting Khlebnikov. Much of the money that we've been describing went to pay for flattering documentaries of Yeltsin on private TV stations, billboards put up by local mayors, pro Yeltsin rock concert, we showed Kim uh, shaking his arms and every time he does, 10,000 Russians die, organized by the entertainment industry, leaflets and posters printed by private publishing houses. To a large extent, the flow of contributions to the campaign was recorded and controlled by campaign headquarters. The system became known as the Black Treasury. Now let's read some of this, again, from Shlebnikov's book, Godfather of the Kremlin. Midway through the campaign, American journalists began uncovering evidence that Yeltsin's team was bribing cash-strapped journalists and their bosses to run flattering pieces about the president. Payments ranged from $100 paid to a provincial reporter for a single positive article to millions of dollars paid to the owners of the largest Russian newspapers. Uh, this corruption was also investigated by the uh, Presidential Security Service because, in fairness to him, General Korshakov was excessively loyal to Yeltsin, uh, corrupt in his own way, but he often thought that a lot of this stuff went too far, so he at least wanted to document it. And so the SPB here did some good documentation. And so, for example, one of the things that they documented was that $169 million, which was a lot of money back in those days, you know, young people, uh, was paid to Berezovsky's ORT TV station. Now, that might same sound strange to today's Russians or anybody who follows modern Russia to associate Berezovsky with ORT, but back then Berezovsky functionally owned ORT, even though it was actually owned by the state. How he creamed money off of that is a whole other scheme we don't have time for, because again, if we covered the criminality in the 1990s, we'd be here all week. So we're going to skip over that. Um, so it also is would not be uh, fair to say that journalists took their ethics seriously. Sergei Parchamenko uh, uh, of uh, the magazine Itogi even declared to the Los Angeles Times that he was willing to subordinate his journalistic ethics to prevent a communist victory. This is not a game with equal stakes, he said. This is why I'm willing to be unfair. That is why I'm willing to stir up wild anti-communist psychosis among the people. The TV networks produced a number of documentaries about Boris Yeltsin, focusing on the early years, the good years. One documentary featured his wife, a cozy grandmother in her home, talking about how happy she was with her husband. Perhaps most important was that the president almost always led the nightly news. There were some significant news events, the ceasefire in Chechnya, Bill Clinton's visit to Moscow, the Russia-Belarus customs agreement, i.e. the beginning of the Union state. But on slow evenings, Yeltsin was shown working in the Kremlin or visiting workers in the provinces. Zyuganov, on the other hand, was rarely seen or heard. Toward the end of the campaign, after Yeltsin became ill, the communists began focusing on whether Russia should elect a seriously debilitated president. 
They tried to buy advertising time on state-controlled TV, but they were refused. While the communists were handicapped by their weak public relations strategy and just lack of money, basically the communists relied on the fact that um, – and we have to reflect the fact that even now with all the entrenched advantages of United Russia for – and we'll be covering United Russia's origins in episode four – uh, the Communist Party is the second biggest political party in Russia, and it has at least 160,000 members. And through other affiliate organizations like the Komsomol, despite the fact that it's not in that many offices, people still have some affection for the Soviet Union. And from that, it's still a large mass organization, and it was even bigger back then. So that's what they tried to do to get around this. But with the media bombardment, they really didn't have much of a chance. Um, one of the, the Yeltsin camp also received the help of foreign campaign specialists. Here comes the American interference. And since this book was published in 2000, this was not exactly a state secret. Um, Tim Bell, the advertising genius behind Saatchi and Saatchi and Margaret Thatcher's election campaign in 1979, and anybody who lives in Britain immediately and whose politics are left of center immediately went, ah, because uh, Margaret Thatcher ruined a lot of things about this country, but that's a separate question. The Eldson team also recruited the campaign managers responsible for California Governor Pete Wilson's impressive come-from-behind election victory in 1994. The American campaign managers were installed in Yeltsin's campaign headquarters in the President Hotel. They were under strict instructions to keep a low profile and to venture from the hotel as little as possible. The California team was based in suite 1,120 of the President Hotel. Across the hall, in room 1,119, was uh, Tatiana Diachenko, i.e. Yeltsin's daughter. The professional relationship, American political strategist George Gorton bragged to Time magazine, was unusually close. Tanya and the Americans shared the same secretary and the same fax machines. She became a link between the Americans and the Russian president. The American consultants were treated like foreign royalty, grumbled Korchakov. After every routine meeting, Tanya immediately ran to them to discuss the new information. The Americans suggested such dirty tricks as trailing Zyuganov with truth squads who would heckle him and cause him to lose his temper. They also reinforced the more basic uh, lessons of modern political campaigning. Daily memos identifying the tasks at hand, points to be hit, images to be transmitted. They did simple things, such as replace a poster of a scowling Yeltsin with a smiling Yeltsin. Photograph sessions and TV appearances were strictly choreographed to seem spontaneous. A running series of public opinion polls and focus group sessions delved into the instinctive reactions of the Russian electorate and shifted the Yeltsin campaign accordingly. Yeltsin was on a grueling cross-country campaign, something that had never been done in Russia before. The Russian president put on a miner's hat and descended into the coal pits. He visited soldiers at distant army bases. He accepted the traditional peasant gesture of hospitality of bread and salt at obscure rural settlements. There are several pictures of this, by the way. At a Moscow uh, uh, rock uh, concert, well, we already covered that one. And Russians had never been subjected to direct mail, like the millions of letters bearing Yeltsin's signature sent to World War II veterans thanking for them for their service. Many of the recipients apparently thought the letters had actually been signed by Yeltsin. They hadn't been. But perhaps the most sophisticated propaganda was produced by American-trained Russian advertising men. 
a company called Video International had been signed up to produce Yeltsin's official campaign spots, 15 different advertising spots, in fact. The strategy was a soft sell. With Yeltsin dominating the nightly news, it was not necessary to show him in the campaign spots. Instead, these were one-minute biographies of sports stars and factory workers, grandmothers and former ministers, farmers and school teachers, soldiers and artists. Accompanied by sentimental music, these people described their struggles, their hard times, their hopes, their uh, values. But each of the spots would end with Yeltsin's signature. I believe, I love, I hope. Boris Nikolaevich Yeltsin. As Washington Post reporters Lee Hochstetter and David Hoffman noted, most of the subjects in the ads were closer to the profile of communist supporters, but all said they were voting for Yeltsin. Kind of what you're to your point, Lydia. Uh, yes, but I, I also like to say that how the general feeling was back then, people were, <laughs> how do I put it? Um, I guess that how how people view it in a very simplified way is that Yeltsin obviously faked it and then people were largely for Zugana, which I'm not saying that they were not. But I also feel like another popular sentiment was that people knew that they had zero trust in Yeltsin, but they also were not necessarily exactly sold on Zugana's ideas. And so, which kind of left them in a situation with no good choice, really. So, to wrap this all up, I should also add that the IMF dispersed a con- an unusually generous loan, which Yeltsin used to begin delivering overdue paychecks just a few weeks before the election to give the idea that things were starting to turn around. It also helped that actually um, the, F- the FS Bay, which had just come into being, had actually located Dudaev and managed to focus in an airstrike on him that killed him. So it even looked as though Chechnya might be coming down. Then Yeltsin also withdrew troops from Chechnya to give the idea that the war was winding down. So just a few weeks before, everything seems to be coming up. But it's also worth noting that in the first round of the election, despite all of these tricks, he lost. He just outright lost. And we should also talk again briefly about the black budget. The, ol- the idea behind the black budget, with all these private contributions, was that oligarchs would be paid back, but with fiscal favors after the election by the Russian government, never mind that the government was bankrupt. Um, they were also allowed all to cream off the black budget they were all contributing to, so they were actually stealing from each other. Given that $2 billion was probably spent on Yeltsin's re-election, again, a lot of money in those days, it is not surprising to see how this was viewed as another source of plunder. Yeltsin, though he lost the first round, persuaded General Alexander Liebed, who we haven't covered, we just don't have the time, to withdraw his candidacy from the presidency. Liebed told his supporters to support Yeltsin. In return, Liebed was made chairman of the Security Council and was promised that Grachov would be fired as defense minister. Grachov was fired. General Igor Rodionov would be made defense minister. Uh, Side note here. Lebed and Rodionov did not like each other, but Lebed deeply respected Rodionov as a commanding officer, an honest man, and as an intellectual. And we'll cover General Rodionov in the next episode. 
and also, finally, that there would be financing provided for serious military reform. Yeltsin won the second round with 54% of the vote, though again, it's highly likely that these numbers were padded and that he either barely won the election or outright lost to Zyuganov, as Medvedev suggested to him. All in all, then, this was the bright Russian democracy of the 1990s Western media is constantly pushing aggressively. Wasn't it fun? Not really. Not really. Wasn't a lot of fun. Okay, so we've been going on long enough. You might think that things have maybe bottomed out. Oh, no, 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 no. You poor, dear, sweet, innocent thing. You thought things were about to get better? You seriously thought that it was all over? That there might be the beginning of a release from this nightmare, from this hell? No, things are about to get worse. Of course they're about to get worse. Why would it be any different? All that death, horror, and suffering we described in Chechnya, it ended up being for nothing. Yeltsin cut the military budget by 5% in 1996, even though the war was still ongoing. As part of a vote-winning gamble, as we said, he withdrew troops from Chechnya. The remaining federal forces were overstretched, exposed, and with morale and motivation as low as ever. The new Chechen leader, to the extent he was one, and we'll get into leadership problems in the next episode, was Aslan Maskhadov, who we showed earlier. Maskhadov decided to upset the Russian position and get into a good place for negotiations. The idea was to storm Grozny, thought secure by federal authorities. In July 1996, Maskhadov was helped by the fact that the federal troops, which were in Chechnya, were mostly out in the south trying to attack without much enthusiasm. On 6 August, as you can see pictured here, the Chechens struck. 1,500 Chechens infiltrated over several hours in small man teams and then attacked before 0600 in the morning. Grozny was garrisoned by 7,000 armed forces and VV personnel. But did we mention how low their morale was? Again, as that VV major said, would you risk your life for $5 a month? Would you do anything for $5 a month? And that was when the $5 was paid. Most uh, federal troops, and some of them, as you can see here, were women, um, and a lot of them were just kids like this poor guy, because this was taken from 1996, and uh, his uh, arm badge identifies him as belonging to a VV division. So he might look like he's a regular soldier, but he actually is from the Interior Ministry. Most of the soldiers fled back into their bases and hunkered down. The Chechens caught anyone they considered to be collaborators and executed him. Several Russian, um, or rather federal, planes and helicopters were destroyed on the ground before they could lift off and get away to safety. More Chechen rebels poured into the city while federal troops fled with much of the population. 220,000 civilians fled Grozny during the attack. General Pulikovsky, the de deputy commander of forces in Chechnya, was readying a new assault and issued an ultimatum to the rebels to withdraw by 21 August. However, it was clear federal forces would be unable to carry this out. As a matter of fact, given how bad training was, there were severe worries that the Air Force, so the VVS, and that the Russian Army and Interior Ministry's own artillery would hit their own men, so it was decided to call off the attack. The new chairman of the Security Council, General Alexander Lievid, flew to Chechnya instead to try and find a way out. 
They mandated a complete ceasefire, and he invited Mashadov to negotiations. Mashadov is there on the left. On 30 August, at Khasavyurt, they signed an accord. It was an utter humiliation for Russia. Russia was to withdraw all federal forces by 31 December 1996. The status of Chechnya in Russia was deferred to a referendum for December 2001. However, given the sentiment in Chechnya at the time, there was little doubt that this would mean, at least from the vantage of late 1996, Chechnya would break away from Russia. It was a humiliating end to an awful war. It definitely was. And if if we want to talk about it from the people's perspective, though, while definitely it was another hit at the people's morale, and people obviously were relieved because, like we say in Russian, um, which loosely translates as uh, a bad peace is better than a good argument or a good fight. And so obviously by that point, people wanted their wanted our voice to stop dying as simple as that but also that humiliation if we talk about the bigger picture is largely why russians lost that sense of self-respect that sense of pride in the 90s compared to what they had back in the ussr and that it took us some years to actually uh, return to that and to find ourselves again this is also why Russians with attitude usually will say there is nothing that can fill our people with more dread than talk of negotiations because of something like Hasev Yurt. Because... It Definitely, definitely, because it, it is a traumatic experience, even though the whole idea of negotiations in itself is nothing terrible, but it does bring back very bad memories. Well, yes, because it meant, given the settlement, that Russia had lost and that all those men who had died in very horrible ways and horrible circumstances and abandoned, but it's still, when you think about it, it's a miracle that the Russian army fought at all and didn't just utterly run away. That They even did something in those circumstances. Again, um, as the major said, would you sacrifice your life for $5 a month? Would you do anything for $5 a month? Well, they still did something. They still did some fighting. And given the situation, that in itself is a miracle of sorts. But that all that sacrifice was rewarded with nothing, worse than nothing. It, it's true. And also, I want to add a, a little bit of a personal touch to this, as my family, like many hours in Russia, was... Uh, touched by this war but my family was luckier than a lot of the families in Russia in the sense that my cousin's husband was able to come home and eventually marry my cousin and his friends were well I feel most of them uh, were able to make it home but I can tell you that um, Russians in general have this fear of war. Fear of war not in the sense that we, we don't want to fight, but we don't have the appetite for it because Russians have, have had too many wars. And I grew up with around some people who went through that war, and I grew up with that um, feeling uh of just how horrible a war is because my cousin's husband was forced to live with the consequences for many years. Like I talked about his 
his dietary habits, but that's more of a, I guess, a funny thing. But he was also shell-shocked and he suffered from terrible migraines for the rest of his life. He also suffered from panic attacks and other very sad things. And effects of events like that, they stay with people. And so the Russian society is very aware of what the cost of a war is. And especially in those circumstances, it was very tragic because right now, even though we are in an, you could say, existential fight, but we are in a much better position economically. And as a society, we're stronger, we're better prepared. Back then, people already were struggling a lot. And then going through that, it was a very traumatic experience on an individual level, on a family level, and also on on the societal level. Yeah. And it's time, I think, for us to give the butcher's bill. At least 5,732 federal servicemen were killed in Chechnya. There are claims that more than twice that number were killed, but these figures are hard, if not impossible, to substantiate. And um, it's probable that these are vastly exaggerated for reasons just because they want to make the Russian armed forces and Russia look even worse than the situation actually was. But this is absolutely dreadful. Uh, 5,700 men is more than the U.S. lost in Iraq over a period of years and with far many more forces deployed and much further from home. Um, but, and given chaotic record keeping, though, it is perhaps safe to add another 2,000 dead to that total. So say that about 7,500 to 8,000 died in the war, federal servicemen. Total Chechen deaths, rebel and civilian, are unknown. At least 40,000 civilians, many of them ethnic Russians, were killed, and many of them by federal troops during bombardments of towns like Argun, Gudermes, and Grozny. At least 3,000 Chechen rebels were killed, but given, as we covered, how ad hoc and informal Chechen rebel fighters would, some would show up on some days to fight, others wouldn't. They weren't necessarily affiliated with any group when they did show up to fight. That 3,000 number is probably much too low and is probably quite a bit higher than that. But how many were killed outright who were insurgents at one time or another? We don't know. We simply don't know, and we likely never will know. So on that very happy note, we will be back the next episode talking about how Yeltsin started at long last thinking of his legacy to turn things around i'm joking of course we'll show how everything got worse and we'll cover off the years 1997 to 1999 so high yeltsinism economic crisis and the year of the three chakists but that is for next time bye for now